from KVLU Public Radio in Belmont, Texas, this is Bayou Lands Talks, a companion podcast where we're sharing some of our favorite conversations with a wide range of guests from the radio documentary series Bayou Lands, a program exploring the people and places of Southeast Texas that has aired on KVLU since 2016. I'm Shannon Harris. For this episode, we're sharing an interview from one of our guest contributors, local journalist Micah Lee. In January of last year, Micah spoke with Janice Joplin biographer Holly George Warren about the life and legacy of one of the most iconic female artists of our time. We hope you enjoy. Holly George Warren, thank you for being here with us today. I'm thrilled to be there. I love Fort Arthur and Beaumont. That's a great area down there. Yes, it is. So um, for our listeners, you've written this wonderful story about Janice Joplin, and I'm assuming that you had some preconceived ideas about her going into this project. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, actually, going back to when I first became a fan, you know, way back when, when I was like 13 years old or so, um, you know, just from reading interviews with Janice and actually reading a biography that came out about her in the 70s, it really kind of fixed this idea that I had of her in my head. But then, once I moved from North Carolina, where I first discovered her as a kid, to New York City, and I started working for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Rolling Stone, I luckily got to meet people who actually played in bands with Janice. I got to meet her siblings, Laura and and Michael, and I started realizing that there was more to the story than I knew about, and that she was um, had a lot more kind of um, kind of a secret life as this um, hardworking musician who was really striving to be this great artist instead of this person who just kind of like, oh, it just kind of happened to me kind of thing. I mean, that's what she would tell the press, et cetera, about her success, that it just kind of fell in her lap and she just kind of stood out there and sang and let the emotions just hit her. And, you know, and all of that has some element of truth. But I began doing research and realized that actually as even a teenager growing up in Port Arthur, she began doing all this research, which continued when she went to Lamar and Beaumont as well and started discovering the blues and really became a student of, you know, at that time, hard to find blues recordings, which kind of set her own her path to be a very different type of singer than we knew of in that time. Who was the woman that she followed, the the black singer or the blues singer that oh, she likes? So well, much? yeah, early on she discovered Odetta, yes. who um, was really the only African-American kind of folk blues singer at that point still... Uh, she had just put out her first album, and she uh, Janice discovered that record and just went nuts over it and actually just kind of literally studied it to try to imitate her singing style. And when she sang Odetta songs for some buddies of hers who she went to high school with, TJ and Port Arthur, they were just blown away that this girl, they had no idea that she could sing in that manner. She had a very pretty soprano voice, which she used in the church choir, beginning at a young age there in Port Arthur, and also as a member of the Glee Club. But she kind of just took that soprano for granted, like, oh, everybody can sing like this kind of thing. But um, as she discovered other types of music, that's when she kind of started working with her voice and singing in a different style. So she didn't really have any formal training other than high school in the choir, you said. Well, actually, interestingly enough, I guess you wouldn't call it formal, but as a very 
young girl, like and we're talking three, four years old, Janice got music singing lessons from her mom. Her mother, Dorothy Joplin, who grew up in Amarillo, Texas and Nebraska, had a beautiful voice as a young girl and actually even toyed with the idea of trying to become a professional singer but did not want to go into that kind of risky, you know, lifestyle, which being a singer, and that would have been for her back in the 20s, late 20s, early 30s, would have been, you know, quite difficult. But she loved to sing, and she taught little Janice how to sing all the different notes and even started showing her some piano when Janice was very young. Sadly, Dorothy Joplin was diagnosed with a tumor on her thyroid, and in the course of the surgery, her vocal cords were damaged, and this was when Janice was about four or five, and so Dorothy was rendered unable to sing at that point, and the family got rid of the piano, and the singing kind of stopped for a while, but there was always music in the house. Janice's father, Seth Joplin, loved classical music, uh, which was not that, you know, not that many dudes in Port Arthur, Texas <laughs> in the 19, late 40s, early 50s, you know, were big classical music buffs, but he was. He'd come home from work at Texaco and sit back in his lounge chair and listen to, you know, Bach and Beethoven, and his eyes would literally well up with tears with the beauty of it. So I think Janice saw the power of music and how it could affect the emotions just by seeing how her dad connected with with it. And then her mom loved, um, you know, show tunes and Broadway musicals and things like that. So they had those kind of records that they played around the house as well. Okay, so she was exposed to all kinds of different music throughout her life. And of course, there was some great radio stations in the area in the 50s, and that's when the first rock and roll explosion hit. So she got to drive around in cars and listen to Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Elvis and on the radio, and then I think she and her buddies discovered an R&B station out of Beaumont that played Bobby Blue Bland and Ivory Joe Hunter, etc. So she started hearing some very cool music in cars, driving around as a teenager, and she started buying those records herself. What was really fascinating to me was to discover that Janice, of course, like everybody, tuned in to see Elvis's first appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show, and she just went nuts over his um, hound dog, but Janice, the you know scholar, the blues scholar, the music scholar, whatever you want to call her, decided she wanted to know more about that song and was able to track down the original version cut by Big Mama Thornton right over you know in Houston and just loved that song. That became you know that version became her favorite, and she turned her friends onto that and and. They told me those stories and remembered so clearly how taken she was with Big Mama Thornton's music. I actually looked that up, that that song, and it's pretty incredible. I liked mm-hmm. it a lot, too. <laughs> Quite different from the Elvis oh, version, yes. I would say. It you? is. Very much different. I yeah. liked it. So how did the family, I know that this was a real tumultuous time for the family, because she she went such a different way than they wanted her to, and have they all sort of made peace with this? Well, you know, the parents, of course, um, have passed away, and Mm -hmm. they actually ended up, um, after Mr. Joplin retired from Texaco, uh, not too long after that in the 70s, they ended up actually moving to Arizona. And, you know, I think that they, you know, kind of came to terms with it. Um, Of course, it was devastating to them because of her passing, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think gradually they just, you know, realized what a huge impact that she had made on not just other musicians, but on her fans. And her fans, you know, continued to write letters to them. And 
I got to see a lot of um, letters. Dorothy Joplin saved everything. So luckily for me, Janice's siblings, Laura and Michael, held on to everything and shared them with me, and I got to read these letters. And in fact, there was this incredible letter that's now on exhibit at the Museum of the Gulf Coast that Dorothy Joplin wrote to um, someone who sent her a condolence card. And it was kind of her saying something to the effect of, you know, Janice being a, the rare woman in this field had a lot of obstacles or something to that effect. I mean, it was a very moving letter. Well, let's talk about our fans because you've been on the road now with your your book and all these book signings and you're meeting so many interesting people and even young people who just adore her. Tell us some of the stories of the people that you've met and how important Janice is to them. Well, I have to say I've been traveling now since, um, well, actually going back to a little preview I did in September in Nashville, but um, ever since I've been off and on on the road all over the country and it's just been amazing the Janice love out there. And I don't believe I've done a single book event where at least one person had, you know, not, you know, at least one person had actually seen Janice live back in the Mm. 60s. And it still reverberated with them to the effect that they could just describe it almost ecstatically to me what that experience was like and what a huge effect it had on the person. But I have to say, when I got to appear at the Museum of the Gulf Coast with Michael Joplin in January, it just was so unbelievably gratifying to see how much people love Janice there now in her hometown. I was just totally you know, blown away by the just numbers of people that came out and also the diversity of people. I think Janice would have loved that because she was always someone who wanted diversity. And so many different types of people came to the event at the museum. You know, I think they sold almost 300 books. I know Michael and I were sitting there signing books for almost three hours, and the line just continued the whole time. But there were people from in their 90s, a wonderful woman who actually worked with uh, Dorothy Joplin at the Port Arthur Business College back in the day, to you know people with their little girls dressed up in little mini Janice outfits <laughs> who had been named after Janice. There were people of color. There were gay couples. There were some, some transgender folks. I mean, it was just wonderful to see just all the different types of people. And in fact, I mean, I I couldn't help but shed a tear at this one. A young woman and her friend had flown all the way from Providence, Rhode Island. I guess they flew into Houston and then rented a car and drove to Port Arthur. This girl, with tears in her eyes, started telling me how Janice's music had gotten her through really, really difficult times in her life. Her father's eventual you know, loss with cancer. He battled cancer for years. And then this young woman, as I think she was in her early 20s, she was 29 when I met her, contracted cancer herself and lost a leg to cancer. And she showed me on her cell phone a photo of her prosthetic leg, which had a big portrait of Janice on it. Wow. And she started singing Cosmic Blues, one of my favorite Janice songs to me, and said that that song had so, held so much meaning for her. So stories like that are just amazing. And again, this woman's 29 years old. She was yeah. born way after Janice's passing. So it just shows how timeless her music is and how it so connects with people. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us about your trip to Port Arthur. I, I, you just mentioned how many people were there. Um, good experience. I'm sure it was. I, oh, I tried it was to get fantastic. there. Fantastic! Yeah. I had a wonderful time. Um, Tom Neal at the museum just kind of rolled out the red carpet and mm-hmm. um, had really just 
you know, put out the word. So there was lots of press coverage. Um, we were on the Channel 12 News that night. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just so wonderful. I got to see um, Sam Monroe, who actually went to school with Janice and whose father um, Janice's mom worked with at the Port Arthur, you know, college there back in the day. Um, he is in retirement now, but he came out and was there. So many great people that helped me on the book. Um, I got to see, and I just love being at the museum. They've been, uh, I haven't been there since 2015, and it was great to get back there and see some of the new additions and um, work they're doing at the museum. It's just a wonderful place. Yes, and I know that people come from all over the world to see that Janice exhibit. Yeah, and in fact, I myself, um, you know, when my son, who just turned 22, was only, I think, like seven or eight weeks old, we were on a road trip driving from uh, Austin, Texas to New Orleans, and we specifically, this was, you know, back in the late 90s, 1998, and we drove through Port Arthur hoping to get to go to the museum, but it turned out we were there at a time when it was closed, on the, you know, a day it was closed, so we didn't get to go. So I finally got to go in 2015. So um, I think so many people want to make a pilgrimage there because of Janice's um, being her hometown and the great exhibit there that's got some of her original paintings and et cetera. So it's, it's great to be there at the museum. So if you didn't get to the museum till 2015, had you already started working on the book by then? Yeah, that was when I started working on the book, was 2015. Oh, okay. So that was part of the research. Yeah, yeah. So that was one of my first uh, trips. Okay. I, Luckily, um, as I mentioned, um, Laura and Michael Joplin were just very helpful as far as sharing their family archives. So I um, went out to California and um, hooked up with uh, Laura. They have an incredible um, storage facility, this vault out in in Hollywood, actually, where a lot of her belongings are and um, papers and scrapbooks and things like that. And um, we ran into Stephen Stills while we were there. He keeps his stuff there. It's this incredible place. (laughs) I think the estate of Marlon Brando's belongings are there, you know, it was awesome. Mm-hmm. So that kind of began my work, and then, of course, Port Arthur soon thereafter. Mm-hmm. So do you have any final thoughts on this? Well, just that um, I still get so excited every time I get to go and give a talk about Janice. I'm, again, just thrilled by the response. I'm booked <laughs> up all up until through the summer with um, I'm going to be at different bookstores all over the country. I'm going to be at different literary festivals beginning. I'm going to one next weekend in Savannah, Georgia, and then I'm going to be in one in Tucson. And I'm going to be at one. I think Michael Joplin's going to be at the one in Tucson, which is, um, I believe it's the first weekend in March, mm-hmm. April, a Fort Lauderdale book festival. And then in June, a literary conference uh, festival in London. So. Wow. You know, it's just thrilling. The book is coming out in various languages. I just got a copy of the edition that just was published in the Netherlands. It came out around the same time it came out in the U.S. It came out in the U.K. and in Germany. And then it's also coming out in um, just everywhere from, like, Estonia, Brazil, Poland, you know, all these different countries, Spain, Italy. So it's, it's very, very exciting. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, she's so well-loved worldwide, and her legend just keeps growing. Yeah, and I say, you know, this, I've listened to her music now pretty much nonstop um, working on the book, and still to this day, I live near Woodstock, New York, and 
we get a lot of airplay of Janice on our local radio stations up here. There's three stations that play her quite a bit, and every time she comes on the radio, I crank it up. You know, I love it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's so good to talk to you again, and thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, and happy Mardi Gras. Yeah. And um, I'm actually going to be doing a Mardi Gras Janice book event up here in the Woodstock area, because mm-hmm. I know uh, Janice coming from Port Arthur, that's a big part of the tradition there. Oh, so yeah. I'm really excited about that. We are, too. <laughs> yeah, well, i, I got to get a Mardi Gras you know, medallion on my beads that has Janice's face oh, on it. Oh, yeah. I think That'd be once great. you give that idea to the to the Gulf Coast Museum, they have a very cool gift shop. I bought lots of Janice memorabilia when I was in there, mm-hmm. you know, souvenirs, rather, when I was in there. So uh, that might be a good one to add to their collection. That's a great idea. We'll call Tom this afternoon. Okay, so. good. <laughs> okay. Have to send me one. Oh, well. <laughs> okay. All right, well, Holly, thank you so much, and uh, take care. Thanks for having me. Good talking to you. You too. Bye-bye. That was a conversation between guest contributor Micah Lee and author Holly George Warren. Our thanks to Holly and to Micah Lee for bringing this interview to Bayou Lands. Holly George Warren is an award-winning author of 16 books, including Janice, Her Life and Music. She has an impressive resume, which includes being an archivist curator for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation and the Grammy Museum as well as serving as a director of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Oral History Program and being a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Nominating Committee. You can learn more about Holly George Warren at her website at hollygeorgewarren.com. Bayou Lands Talks is produced in the studios of 91.3 KVLU Public Radio in Beaumont, Texas by Shannon Harris and Jason M. Miller. For more information and to stream KVLU online, visit kvlu.org. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed it, please remember to share and subscribe to Bayou Lands Talks wherever you find your podcasts.